autistic people with quality of life and opportunity. You're listening to the Autism CRC podcast. This is the Autism at Work speaker series featuring pre-recorded audio captured during the live Autism at Work virtual summit event held in March 2023. Hear from over 40 local and international speakers, panelists and presenters, including neurodivergent employees and employers, as they discuss the important topics affecting autistic people at work. You can also watch this series on the Autism CRC YouTube channel. Good morning, my friends, and welcome back. Great to see you once again. And here we are, my friends, day two, our Autism at Work virtual summit. I'm your MC and host, Orion Kelly, and I'm broadcasting live from the Bass Coast of Australia. For those not from Australia watching internationally, so I'm talking about the absolute bottom of mainland Australia and I look out my window um, I, I can see uh, the coast the, I can hear the ocean I can tell you the skies are as black as a dog's guts so if the internet go, uh, for those overseas that means they're dark um so yeah if the internet goes a bit dodgy it's because it's just a beautiful uh, autumn morning here on the best coast of Australia okay although my internet's probably better than most of the city slickers because I don't use Australian internet I use Elon Musk satellites orbiting the earth okay now uh i want to welcome you back to day two and after a, a phenomenal uh, day one we have some back-to-back uh, -back keynotes which i think is extraordinary um and you you may well go sorry sorry did you say keynotes um i don't want to get into a, a question of semantics here on the premise that you can have keynotes does that dispute the purpose of keynote is it is it the keynote or are there many of them and therefore, are they all key or are they just multiple notes? This is a question I can't answer. And I'm sorry. And I, uh, I apologize. Nevertheless, here we go. This is our third keynote. So it's, it's, it's key. In fact, it could be keyer than the other three or two, but it's the third keynote. This one's the keyest, I believe. Uh, and it's presented uh, by Ultranauts, uh, Rajesh Anandan and Nicole Razwil. Oh, sorry, Nicole, I always get that wrong. I'm Orion Kelly, here to host this amazing session. Now, before I hand over to Rajesh and Nicole, I'd like to let you know that, as always, you have an opportunity to, to submit questions at any time during the session. You type your questions in the Q&A pane. You can access the pane by clicking on the Q&A tab on the right-hand side of your screen. Other people's questions are going to appear in there. If you like them, you can upvote them, right, by clicking on the arrow beside it. And it's a good way of saying power to the people. Uh, we'll try to get to as many as we can. Now, let's get to our first is going to be, uh, this is even more confusing. Uh, keynote three has two keynotes, um, both as key as the, the, the first. The first is a 10-minute recorded by Rajesh, and then the second is a live uh, by Nicole. Okay, so Rajesh Anandan is an impact entrepreneur and growth architect. He's the co-founder and CEO of Ultranauts Inc., an award-winning quality engineering firm with employees in 30 states across the U.S., 75% of whom are on the autism spectrum. Named a fast company world-changing idea, MIT Solve Challenge winner, and interbrand breakthrough brand, Ultranauts is reimagining how a company hires talent, manages teams, and develops careers. Rajesh is also the founder of UNICEF Kid Power, which launched the world's first wearable for good product and streaming for good service, and was named one of Time's 25 best inventions. Wow. Rajesh began his career at Microsoft as a program manager 
and then joined Bain & Company, where he focused on business incubation and growth strategy. For the past two decades, he's focused on social impact, including setting up and running UNICEF Ventures, an incubator for self-sustaining tech for good ventures. Rajesh has a master's in computer science and electrical engineering from MIT with concentrations in artificial intelligence, I like that, uh, system dynamics and economics. Now, I'll reintroduce Nicole in a bit, but let's just get some information on her for you. So Dr. Nicole Radswell is the Senior Vice President and Chief Data Scientist at Ultranauts, Inc. She leads the development of new capabilities, including in data quality engineering and designs new work systems to scale the firm's neurodiverse organization. Formerly, she was Vice President of the Global Quality and Supply Chain Practice at Intellects Technologies, and a tenured associate professor of data science and production systems. She sounds like a goddess. Uh, Dr. Radswell is uh, an elected academia. In, in, you, know, you, you work that word out for yourself with the International Academy of Quality, a fellow of the American Society for Quality, a past chair of the ASQ software division, and an internationally recognized expert in digital transformation and next generation quality. We'll be back tomorrow for the rest of the intro. Uh, she has a PhD in quality systems, has published data science and statistics textbooks used in over 30 universities, and is the author of Connected, Intelligent, Automated, the Definitive Guide to Digital Transformation and Quality 4.0 for ASQ Quality Press 2020 in brackets. All right, two phenomenal guests. First up, let's get to Rajesh. Rajesh. Hi, it's great to be here. Uh, I'm so sorry I'm not joining live. I uh, managed to mess up the time zones between um, Australian time and uh, US time, but um, you're in good hands with my better half uh, and uh, colleague at Ultranauts, Nicole, who'll dive a little bit more deeply into how we think about inclusion at Ultranauts and building capability as an organization, as teams. Uh, but I just wanted to say thanks for having us and also take a few minutes to provide some context on how we've seen the evolution of the neurodiversity at work um, initiatives across a number of companies and um, how Ultranauts has approached uh, the same arena. So uh, we've been around for uh, almost a decade. My co-founder and I started the company um, in 2013. We uh, started the company to uh, demonstrate that neurodiversity could be a competitive advantage in business. And our theory of change was very simple. Step one was build a commercially viable, successful business that could deliver better value for the clients we work with, um, powered by a truly neurodiverse team. And we focused on quality engineering. We started in software, we've moved into data as the domain where we wanted to demonstrate that advantage. And then step two of that theory of change was to take everything we've learned about building high-performing neurodiverse teams and share it with other organizations to try to shape a more inclusive future of work for everyone. And um, we're well on our way on step one um, as a business, and we're just getting to step two of our journey. And this is happening in the context of um, a lot of other companies um, also trying to figure out how to create more inclusive workplaces and, and work practices. Um, 
for neurodivergent talent based on the premise that there is an advantage to having different brain types on the same team. And neurodiversity is one dimension of the broader concept of cognitive diversity, which includes not just different brain types, but different lived experience and different um, thinking styles and, and problem solving approaches. Um, and there's study after study that have pointed to teams that are more cognitively diverse, being able to solve more complex problems faster, surface more unique insights, drive improvement in a more continuous way. And as a recognition, and particularly around uh, neurodiversity, they've been uh, really over the last decade, um, an increasing number of companies that are trying to figure out how to attract and retain and integrate neurodivergent talent. Um, we're Ultranauts as part of Disability In, uh, which is a US-based organization, and that employer roundtable for neurodiversity at work has over 50 member companies, including many of whom uh, are part of the Fortune 500. So these are big companies, not just little ones like Ultranauts. And um, last year, that group led by Microsoft launched a career connector, the neurodiversity career connector that started to consolidate and have one place that a neurodivergent job seeker could go to find um, jobs from companies that were um, conscious and mindful of neurodiversity. Um, while all of this is happening, there's still a lot of work to do. You know, the current approach um, tends to be that there are targeted hiring uh, for some roles for neurodivergent talent, but what does that mean? Does that mean other roles are not appropriate? Of course not. And so this is just a starting point. We need to evolve. Um, there's a focus on awareness workshops and trainings um, to educate managers about autism, about neurodiversity. And that's a starting point. But of course, you know, workshops don't change behavior. Uh, we're all humans. We have a hard time changing our behaviors. And it certainly doesn't change systems or outcomes for neurodivergent talent who are brought into an organization that hasn't been designed with um, their strengths and, and needs in mind. Um, we tend to also rely on job coaches and, and alternates. We don't have job coaches, but a lot of organizations do, and, and they play an important role. Um, at the same time, they are providing a Band-Aid solution because the job coaches are filling gaps um, that are left by organizational practices and norms um, that don't work for everyone on the team, um, in this case, the neurodivergent teammates. And, and then there's a focus on um, putting in place accommodations, sort of uh, workplace accommodations for the specific needs of neurodivergent teammates one at a time. And again, this is important to have in place, but it's also not a solution. It's also a band-aid because it's also um, hiding the underlying failures of the system of the workplace, the practices, the processes that aren't meeting the needs of someone who then needs an accommodation. And so it's important that as we celebrate all the progress that we've made, that we also focus on the real problems to be solved. Right? So how do we move from separate programs for different targeted hiring initiatives and talent groups to just you know, objective screening that addresses some of the biased um, norms and habits that we, most organizations have um, like a reliance on prior education or prior experience or certain modes of communication, or some of the inequitable practices um, that are um, embedded in, in many talent processes and in many organizations. You know, who can say that they trust their 
pro promotion decision-making process in their company, or they love their performance review process, you know, not, not too many people. And it's particularly important to address these gaps um, if we want to create a fair environment where the neurodivergent teammates, and frankly, any teammate that's coming into the organization is set up to succeed. Um, and then we have, you know, uh, norms in many organizations that just create anxiety, you know, interrupt driven schedules, last minute meetings, a lack of clarity um, in expectations or directions. And these aren't really about neurodivergent teammates and the needs of neurodivergent teammates, but really about good management and good teaming and good collaboration. And we need to address those um, if we are to build high performing neurodiverse teams. And as we're doing that, there also needs to be accountability of on the organizations and the management teams that are creating um, the context for these teams to thrive. How do you know it's working? How inclusive is your organization? Are you improving? What actions are working? And so we have a long way to go. Um, so before I hand over to Nicole, uh, a bit of background on Alternauts. Uh, as I mentioned, we started the company about a decade ago, and um, we are building a data and software quality engineering business. We've been growing at you know, 30, 40, 50% a year consistently over that decade, some years more, some years less. Um, but we've built a business that is seen as a leader, particularly around data quality engineering, for example, and our clients include a who's who across a range of industries from Goldman Sachs in banking to CVS Health in healthcare to Disney and media to Salesforce and Slack in technology. And because of the value we provide our clients, we've been able to continue to grow and sustain that growth over time. Um, and the reason we're able to do that is because um, we have a truly unique team, a truly neurodiverse team. We're only in North America in 30 states across the US uh, from East to West Coast and a couple of Canadian provinces as well. Three quarters of our team is neurodivergent. Uh, the majority of our teammates are autistic. We have many teammates who are ADHDers, who are dyslexic, who are dyspraxic. Um, we have teammates who are non-speaking, including in lead roles on engineering teams. And while we reimagined our workplace and our work systems to solve for neurodiversity, by doing that, we ended up with human diversity. So we have more females than males, including on the leadership team. And we're an engineering firm. A fifth of our managers are black, a higher proportion than at the entry level. And we're all in North America. A quarter of our engineers don't have a university degree. 40% of our team were receiving government assistance before they joined. And across every dimension that you might look at the makeup of our team, we're just a, a group of very different humans. And so for us, we couldn't rely on one-off accommodations or you know, job coaches or targeted initiatives to hire one group or another. We had to reimagine every aspect of our workplace and redesign our systems and our practices, which led us to a very different approach. And so I'm going to hand over to Nicole, who's going to dive a little bit more deeply into the theory and our practice around inclusion and importantly on how you can, quote, do inclusion. Thanks so much. I'm sorry again that I'm not there in person, uh, but I hope you find this session useful and thank you for giving us this time and the space. Well, thank you, Rajesh. Uh, phenomenal. Uh, undeniable. Um, some of the, the, uh, the data and the results and the philosophy there I'm just astounded by. I can't wait to uh, hear from 
Nicole, where she's she's here live to talk to us now, and I'll, I'll let her go for it. I can't wait to hear this. So, uh, Nicole Radzville, uh, God, I, I hope I said that right, Nicole. Uh, welcome, welcome, my friend. Please uh, take the stage. Thank you, Orion. Okay, so the theme of this conference is building capability. So we thought that one of the things that we would talk about is uh, it relating to one of the most significant lessons. Actually, it's a group of lessons that we've learned in this first decade of Ultranauts. So like Rajesh alluded to, what we want to know is how can we transform inclusion from an ideal that we aspire to, to something that's actually a capability? So what is a capability? When something is a capability, it's actionable. We know what to do next. Sometimes there's multiple things we can choose from to do next. But when we're building an inclusive environment, it can be really difficult to figure out what to do next. And you know, based on the lived experiences of a lot of us here, we know firsthand how inefficient and painful it can be to be excluded, particularly at work. When you think about your past experiences, each one of us has probably experienced at least one situation where a coworker thinks they're being inclusive, but it sure doesn't feel like that. So what that means is, even if you work in a company that's committed, completely committed to diversity, equity, inclusion, kind of like ours, that doesn't mean you're definitely gonna feel included or feel like you belong all the time. It's still gonna be hard to create that inclusive environment. So we wanted to figure out why and figure out what we could do about it. Because inclusion is one of the forces that drives the universal workplace. That's at the core of Ultranaut's mission. To, to demonstrate the power of cognitively diverse teams, we've got to create an environment where each one of us can perform and each one of us can thrive. And if we're gonna do that, there's a few things that have to be priorities. We've gotta care about mental health. There's always gonna be days like for example, three days ago, when Google Drive and Google Docs changed its fonts and its color scheme just so slightly that it, you know, it, some of you might have felt this too, makes a bunch of us feel like we're sitting in a cloud of gnats. There's going to be days where we just can't sleep or days that we have panic attacks and need some space and maybe some time to recover. We need to care about flexibility because we might need our teammates to cover for us if we have to duck out of a meeting or be somewhere else during a keynote or help us to work to a schedule that honors a body clock. We've got to care about transparency because we don't want to wonder if we're doing the right thing. We don't want to have to guess about what we need to do to do our work. And we don't want to have to navigate around political players who are holding back information to protect their power. We've got to care about continuous learning because none of us are going to have the right answer the first time ever. Each of us has got a piece of the right answer, but without open dialogues, we can't get to our collective goals with ease. And we need to care about inclusion, which is a prerequisite to collaboration. We're not going to benefit from somebody else's viewpoint or expertise if we're not inviting them to meetings or sharing information with them or stuff like that. So while each of these things is challenging to consistently implement in practice, inclusion is super hard. And I think here's why. So for each of us to feel included and to have a sense of belonging, we're told that our organizational culture has to cultivate psychological safety, that feeling that it's okay to take a risk around people we work with, that there won't be retaliation, that there won't be negative consequences. But to get that safety, we're told we need to feel included and have a sense of belonging. 
so that we feel comfortable to take a risk. So, you know, hmm, where do we start when you got a chicken and egg situation like this? Well, one place to start, and this is exactly where we went back to, is to see what researchers say about inclusion. Because as a professional community, they've been thinking about it for an awfully long time. According to them, inclusion is an intentional and an ongoing effort. We all have to create the conditions for inclusion all the time. And we got to do this to make sure everybody across all identities and combinations of identities and backgrounds can fully participate in the work. So for me, being able to fully participate means I'm not stuck on the sidelines being a spectator. It means that there's ways for me to get involved, ways for me to engage with those opportunities. So here's an example. Let's say I'm a customer and I hire people to do some work. Well, I can include them in the work by spending time with them upfront, making sure they have access to all the resources they need to move forward. They've also got to include me in their work process because without communication, the option of, of getting checkpoints, I'm going to be sidelined and I'm not going to be able to steer the work in the way that I need to. So moral of the story is that it happens in multiple roles in the relationships with others at work. So this example shows that inclusion isn't just a manager to employee action, but it's many everyone to everyone actions. Other people in the DEI space recognize it too. Inclusion is action. Belonging, which is that comfortable, warm feeling that you get when you're around people who care, that feeling that's usually associated with, with team cohesion, that other people around you have got your back, that's the outcome of lots, lots of incremental inclusive actions by many people. So we want to take action to include others because we want everybody to feel like they belong. We try. We might think we're doing it, but that's kind of where everything breaks down because think about the advice you've gotten about how to create an inclusive environment. Number one that I've heard of is be an inclusive leader. So, okay, that's awesome, but how? How am I gonna, how am I gonna be an inclusive leader? And you know, more instructions than that. Another good one is make sure all voices are heard. Well, great, but how? What's the evidence that a voice is heard? And, like another thing to worry about is what do you do when those voices are just factually wrong? Another one is be an active listener, which is a little easier to implement, but you know, I'm pretty sure I listen to people very carefully. I'm pretty sure I even act on their ideas sometimes, but I'm not sure those people would agree. Another one is, another example is seek out and include diverse perspectives and experiences in discussions and decision-making. Well, it sounds great, but what if my actions to seek out aren't the same actions that somebody else might recognize as seeking out? And if I don't seek enough, some people are probably gonna get mad and feel like they don't belong. So even when we have the best of intentions, we often pull off inclusive practices in incomplete and imperfect ways. And I think that's because the way that we define inclusive actions is incomplete and we make a lot of assumptions. So that's the gap that we wanted to close at Alternauts because even with a firm intention to be inclusive, without making the whole concept less ambiguous, we're gonna conflate the feelings of inclusion and belonging with the actions that increase the chance those feelings are gonna happen. So inclusion happens on two levels. First is the organizational level. That's where policies for things like hiring and performance management come about. And then there's inclusion at the team or work group level. That's where we engage with each other personally day to day. So 
within each of those two levels, there's three categories of actions. Each of them are centered around unblocking some kind of access. So we've got to unblock access to physical resources like, like um, access to buildings, materials like laptops, licenses for systems, that sort of thing. We've got to unblock access to work processes and information. Um, and we've got to unblock access to the productive social interactions that are going to help us engage with and learn from each other. And within our teams, we're pretty much only in control of two of those six boxes. But here's where the, here's where the conflict comes. We, we get our subjective feelings of inclusion and belonging from actions that are taken in all six categories. So even though we can only control activities, actions that we do in two categories, the feeling comes from all six. So let's take a more pragmatic approach. If we're gonna make inclusion actionable, we have to empower teams to focus on the actions that they can control. Let's focus our actions on those two boxes and make sure that as part of our learning together that we give feedback to the other parts of the organization who can adjust the other four boxes to include more inclusive policies. Let's also look at feelings of exclusion and lack of belonging based on where the gap is to close. Let's, let's narrow it down. Which one of those six boxes are we feeling excluded in? So it probably isn't all of them. And these gaps fit into a broader context because every team, every work group consists of individual and unique people. And we don't come into our teams as a blank slate. We're, we're colored and informed by our past experiences, whether those are good or bad. Um, your day-to-day -day reactions are gonna be influenced by past traumas, maybe even going all the way back to childhood. So some of us are gonna take a while to feel included and feel like we belong, even under perfect circumstances. And it's not our team's fault that it might take us some time to get comfortable because even after we feel comfortable in general, conflicts are gonna happen. They'll make us feel temporarily uncomfortable. And that's okay, it's just, it's to be expected. So first, we've got to know what our base state is. What's the person that we bring to our team? What are our expectations for being seen and being heard? We need to think about what do we expect belonging to feel like so that we can recognize it when it happens. One of the things that surprised me quite a bit over the past few weeks is that I've asked some people, when you feel belonging, what's it gonna feel like? What, how are you gonna recognize it? And people struggle to get that answer. So this is really something I encourage everybody to reflect on. Next, as a team, we form a team. We can choose and agree on the inclusive practices that we wanna adopt. So at Ultranauts, we've identified 100 specific actionable ways that we can be inclusive to each other. And we've done that over the course of, of several years to solve the problem of vague, unactionable actions. So once we put some of those 100 practices in place, because you probably can't implement all of them, uh, we can monitor whether they're working for us. And if they aren't working for us, we can adjust. At the same time, if we notice things that aren't inclusive at the organizational level, we can share that information with the people who might actually be able to affect meaningful change, but we can separate the organizational issues from the inclusive actions we can take locally to build an inclusive culture within our teams. And I think by doing that, we can all be more successful. At the organizational level, 
we can also challenge ourselves to see where inclusion can be infused into work processes. For example, one of the ways we transform talent processes to be more inclusive was to change the nature of promotions. Promotions can be subjective. You know, at, at a lot of companies, maybe they're determined by how well you get along with your boss or how skilled your boss thinks you are, even if they don't have a basis to know. Um, in a lot of organizations, managers have lots of power. That's not always objective. So we intentionally shifted the power dynamic. Most of us want to be promoted based on merit, but merit is something that's differentially recognized. While one person might think we're ready for a promotion, another might have valid reasons to think we're not. And the answer, the reality, usually lies in the middle of all the opinions, in the, in the middle of each of the perspectives that each of the evaluators provides. So we've shifted talent processes to be evidence-based, community-driven, and, and broadly supported instead of in, in very narrow focuses. At Ultranauts, your colleagues want you to get promoted. And they want to make sure you're ready. They want to help you make sure you're ready. We also want to make sure that you have a portfolio that can help you get another job if you want. Because when you're at a particular organization by choice, that's a much more powerful feeling than if you're employed somewhere because you think nobody else will have you. Another way to bake inclusion in at the institutional level is by building a capability engine. This is a concept that's been around since the 1990s, but you still don't see it in many organizations. The idea is that we all have work experiences. We all have perspectives that are helpful to those around us, especially people who are a couple steps behind us on the learning curve. So how can we mine assets from the work we do every day that illustrates what good performance looks like, uh, use those as, as yardsticks to evaluate our performance against, and then continually improve and head back into work to have more experiences to do it all again. This shifts the dynamic to everyone teaching everyone, which is inclusive because it enables more people to engage in full participation in evolving the business, the entire business. And we're within days of bringing this blueprint to the world and helping other companies um, do the self-reflection, select the inclusive practices and continually improve them locally within teams um, while providing feedback to the institutional level. It, it helps us divide and conquer and, and brings us together. Most importantly, this approach breaks down an assumption that, that many of us hold consciously or sometimes unconsciously, and that is an inclusive environment is something that our employers provide for us, but it's not. It's something we all create every day, over and over again. And the fascinating thing about bringing these ideas to the world is that none of us who have participated in this process over the past 10 years could have created what we see today on our own. You can see the seeds and the, the threads of insights that so many people have brought to this process embedded in the way that, uh, that this looks today. Our, our customers have even participated in shaping this by helping us understand their starting points what can help us connect with them to create more effective environments for neurodivergent people. They've helped us understand the challenges they face in getting tractions in their own organization, building inclusive environments. And no single person looking at what we have today will be able to say, yes, that's my idea, because the idea is far bigger than any single contributor. And that, reveals a really important lesson about inclusion, which is being heard doesn't necessarily mean that your idea was implemented exactly as you thought it. It means that 
you helped to shift or change dominant beliefs in such a way that the product of your team's work ends up different than it would have been if your voice wasn't part of shaping that work. But not all ideas from individuals should be implemented as is. Are you going to end up with output that looks like this um, pepperoni, turkey, chocolate, M&M pizza? And some people in a team are going to be held accountable to a greater degree than others. All, all of these dynamics together make inclusion hard because it's never a good feeling to be told, no, we are not putting a whole chicken on this pizza, even when it's the right thing to do. But you're not being excluded if your chicken doesn't get on the pizza. Other people around us help us shape ideas, help us test ideas. They help us see things we can't see, maybe that we don't want to see. Inclusion is about taking action every day and engaging in those dialogues that help us collectively get a, a better, richer, more complete answer than any of us can get on our own. So we end up with a product that other people enjoy tasting. Um, unfortunately, work too often feels, feels like, like this. I, the employee, I'm doing something for you, the manager, the employer, and you're grading me. You're evaluating me on how well I can guess what you want and how well I can pull it off. But 99% of the time, that's not what managers want. They want the dialogue that leads to shared understanding because that helps everybody. So we need to shift from being included to get our way to let our voice be heard to being included so we can all get better outcomes together. What I'd, what I'd like to challenge everybody to think about today is, what does being heard mean to you? What about being seen? How does belonging feel? Are you gonna recognize it when it happens? What assumptions are you making about what an inclusive environment is gonna look and feel like to you? When you're actually being included, what does it feel like? How can you include other people in a way that they can see it, that they can feel it? It's tough. And that's why inclusion is an intentional ongoing effort that all of us need to make all the time. So we invite you to take that first step today and visit biodex.info to do some self-reflection. Um, we developed biodex to help us engage with each other in more inclusive, more meaningful ways. You can go in and fill out your biodex, describe how you work best, bring it to your team, use it as the basis for discussion. So for example, some of the things that you'll find in biodex is um, what is someone's usual response time on Slack or Teams? Should you expect an immediate response? Or are they really mad at you? Um, that was a little bit of a stretch. Will somebody speak up when they have something to contribute or, or do they need to be called on? Is it okay to put somebody on the spot without advance notice? Some people are cool with it. Some people it makes them really uncomfortable. How can you draw out somebody's ideas and input or provide critical feedback and make sure it's received well? Those are some of the things that are in Biodex, including what does it mean to be recognized in a way that's meaningful to you? So at Ultranauts, when we wanna know any of these answers, we go check somebody's Biodex. We just released a free web-based version of this so other teams can benefit and you can set up your own at biodex.info. Logging a Biodex is step one in building inclusion as a capability because it helps you understand other people's base state. This year, we're gonna be providing more tools, more insights to help everybody reflect on how we show up for our teammates. Um, so we encourage you to play along at home. And now that I'm at the end, 
uh, I just wanted to mention something specifically to you, Orion, which is you got me thinking about key notes and keynotes. And uh, I think my keynote is middle G. <laughs> That's amazing, Nicole. I, I Can I say, uh, honestly, um, for starters, I'm, I'm in awe. I'm, I'm in awe. And I think everyone watching should be in awe of what you're what you're creating and what you're putting together and what you're achieving. Uh, yeah. I'm, I'm a little, I'm a little speechless. And I think it's probably because, well, you know, in, in 20 minutes, you've basically um, destroyed the, in my opinion, the entire system in, in my country. Um, and, and simply because if you asked me, how, how does inclusion for autistic people look in modern day Australia, I would say it's a philosophy, it's a it's a policy, it's a set and forget, it's a vibe. Um, that's how I would say it. It's kind of like a, you know, like a it's a picture on the wall, you know, like the picture on the wall that that get on the train. Are you on the train? Get on the train. It's like, well, what am I getting on a train for? I've come here to work, like you know. Um, and I think that probably hit home. I, I want to mention something, but I just got to quickly, because at the moment, I think the only question that's been submitted is someone saying they think my term black as a dog's guts is a really amazing saying. That's not appropriate. I appreciate the feedback. Thank you. Um, but I need actual questions for Nicole. So please go to the Q&A pane and put in your actual questions. Um, that just Rajesh and Nicole have brought up a thousand things and I want to talk about that. So please, let's see those questions in the pane. But before we get to that, in inclusion is the intentional and ongoing effort. It's it's an action. It's not an outcome. I'm, I'm repeating this over and over because I really want people watching to hear this because we can fall into a philosophical trap for inclusion, in my opinion. So I know I know it might be repetitive, but I just just for people listening, can you just quickly talk a bit more about the the idea the the, the idea of the, the importance of reframing inclusion as not only intentional, but ongoing and ongoing. Can you talk a bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. So I think the place to start is by reaffirming that inclusion isn't something that our workplaces provide for us. I mean, in some sense, yeah, you know, at the organizational level, you can have inclusive policies or you can have policies that exclude one or more people, one or more groups. And, you know, that's, I'm not denying that. But all too often, we engage and in, in work with the people in our immediate vicinities, people around us, from a perspective that if things don't feel good in that team, and we know our, our employer, we know the, the organization wants to be inclusive, a lot of times that can set up a cognitive dissonance. Because we know the employer puts, you know, they, they care about diversity, equity, inclusion. We know they want us to feel good. Why don't we feel good? And so what you have to, what you have to step back and say is, all right, well, what does it mean? What does it mean for you personally to, to feel good, to feel included, to, to feel like you belong? Um, you have to find out what are the other people on your team expecting. If everybody on your team is just sitting there waiting for your organization to create a utopia around you so that conflict doesn't exist, that's not gonna happen. You know, Inclusive teams, there's gonna be conflict. You just need to figure out a good way in advance to resolve it. It's not gonna be the perfect, happy utopia that you expect, but it can be a very constructive place where it's safe to 
say what you feel where, you know, you know, you're not going to be, you know, you're not going to be criticized or ridiculed or God forbid fired just because you want the work to be better and, and you want everyone's performance to increase. So I, I think that's probably one of the core, core components. Yeah. And what you, a lot of that resonated with me from my personal experiences with, with regards to the idea that inclusion to, to me is really about the idea of, of um, the, the kind of appreciation or understanding that I, I'm different or I can do things differently. And in doing so, there's, there's not a, um, um, there's no malice or I'm not being, un, I'm not trying to be unprofessional or I'm not trying to make any trouble. Like you say, like if, if I speak up about something that can be done better, but then th that might be taken entirely the wrong way. And that, that to me is inclusion and it works both ways, just an understanding between teammates. Um, because I, I, I agree. Um, it can't just be about me demanding uh, inclusion um, and and just forcing it upon everyone else. Um, in saying that, though, um, clearly, you know, neurotypical employees um, are going to have a, a much higher percentage of simply fitting in and feeling a part of the team and, and feeling included, with, as opposed to someone who has, you know, historically tr had trouble getting jobs and keeping jobs. That's just factual. But um, I think I think the biggest one of the big issues, as you say, um, the utopian thing is, we, I feel like we're, we we live in a time where everyone is becoming. Uh, potentially, potentially, <clears throat> potentially, sorry, becoming potentially fatigued by um, by a wave of inclusion for every little thing, and and as a result, that they it's just pushback now. If do you know what I mean? It's like everyone feels yeah, slightly fatigued by that. There's there's so many initiatives that focus on the feelings, but if you focus on the actions, then you can be a little bit closer to measuring how those actions impact performance. Feelings are great, but performance is really what you're trying to achieve, right? If if I'm if I'm the head of an organization and I've put in a lot of time and effort and energy to make sure that I have diverse identities all over my organization, and yet I don't create an environment where they can fully participate in the work, I've just wasted my investment in that diversity. So, you know, from a from a really um, feelings-free perspective, it still makes sense to create an environment where everyone can fully participate. I think, I think where we have kind of, and I won't say get it wrong because I, you know, the, all of the work that's been done over the past two, three decades in inclusion has been really important in sensitizing people to the fact that these issues exist. I think that what, what we've tended to do is focus on the feelings so much that we don't do the actions, that we don't take personal responsibility and realize that we have agency in creating these inclusive environments. And sometimes that agency means recognizing and realizing there's some things in the institutional level that a lot of us just can't control. And so rather than getting really upset that we can't control them, let's focus on what we can control and create a good environment for each other. And then as a team, feed up, feedback that information so that the organization knows this issue exists because maybe they don't know. Yeah. And talking about the controllables, you talked about removing barriers to full participation and how you know, that that obviously um, lends itself to practices, to inclusive practices. But I found that really interesting. Um, I think, and I, I think that's 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 just the case. I mean, there are there are barriers to it to someone feeling included, feeling like they belong, feeling like 
you know, they have a satisfaction, they're, they're part of something. Um, and the barriers are different though for, for every single person and clearly, you know, 75% neurodivergent people. I can only imagine the um, all the different types of um, barriers you've come across though. But um, I'm just interested in, I guess, in more just, I guess the experiences in that for people, you know, watching, because for me, it's, um, I don't, it, I don't want you to fix the barrier um, or I don't want to get over a barrier of wanting to be a part of so, um, social gatherings at work. Um, if you, if you fixing like my participation in a social gathering at work, is that full participation? Cause I don't want that barrier to be fixed. I just don't want to have to go to social gatherings at work. So, I mean, like full participation, it's a really, um, I found that really interesting, really thought provoking. I just love to hear just some of your insights or experiences in, in your, in the idea of removing barriers Absolutely. to full participation. So I read this really interesting paper last week and the entire paper was on the subject of what does full participation mean for people who have recently had strokes? So, I mean, such a, such a strange little niche of a publication, you know, such a strange thing for people to be doing research on, but it was a really interesting paper because what they, what they studied was they asked people who had had strokes and who hadn't had strokes about what do you think full participation means? And what the answer ended up being was full participation for people who are within a year of recovering from a stroke is not going to include the same activities that other people might think of as, as being able to fully participate. You may have to redefine the bounds of the work so that the participation can expand to fill the space that it's able to and that it's comfortable with. And so when you mentioned about, you know, I really don't want to have to go to those company parties and I, you know, I, I don't want to have to fake fun around colleagues, right? Yeah, neither do I, but that maybe that's not part of the profile that I need to expect from myself where full participation is included. So you bring up another really interesting point there, which is how much of these things are expectations that we put on ourselves because we think other people want to see them versus how much can the gap be closed by us just being open about, you know, I'm really happy the party exists for all of you who want to go. Not really something that I enjoy spending time doing, but I'll see you at this other thing. I'll, I'll see you at the strategic planning meeting, which are always fun. You know, I mean, full participation can mean different things to different people. Yeah, great point. Great, great thoughts. Okay, these are questions now from our amazing attendees. Uh, really challenging presentation. Thanks, Nicole. I'm just reading them verbatim. Uh, you've talked a lot about inclusion, but can you talk a bit more about belonging? You mentioned you asked employees and they were unclear in their answers. What do you think it is or feels like? It's interesting that you bring that up because one of the things that we want to do is to be able to look at many, many Biodex profiles to start, to start extracting themes about what belonging looks and feels like to different people, to different, you know, based on, based on um, how you, how you group yourself. Uh, it's really a different, different thing to everybody. Um, for me, belonging just means that I have people to talk to about interesting ideas who can challenge me on those ideas. And I know some people wouldn't find that to be belonging. They'd find that to be pretty threatening. You know what? You like people to challenge your ideas? Well, heck yeah, absolutely. That makes me feel like I'm part of the Part of the, the the dialogue, right? Um, but it's going to be different for everybody, and I think that's one of the things that we could be sensitive to. Is number one, sit back and think, really think. What are other what are other places 
that you uh, workplaces, maybe you know school, anything you could think of, places where you really felt like you belonged. What were the characteristics? How can you make more of that in the new environments that you find yourself a part of? You really have to, it's a hard question to ask, but that's really where we all need to start. Otherwise, we're just going to wander through our professional lives, hoping that we feel belonging, maybe, and hoping that we're heard, but not really feeling like it, and just desperately wishing maybe this is the week we'll be seen, but then not recognizing when it actually happens. So it's, it really does start with self-reflection and, and hard self-reflection. Which is what you said when you spoke, I wrote it down. What does inclusion mean and feel like to you? And obviously it, it comes down to each and every person really reflecting on that and then bringing it together. And that, I think that makes a lot of sense. And you know what? I, I, I'm happy to say that maybe I am, I am a little bit um, resentful, um, you know, um, in general um, of the work needed to be done by the, the person themselves. A lot of times, maybe I'm lazy in those, in, in that stage. I'm happy to accept that. Um, it's like, no, we, what do I have to do everything for you? You work it out. But now, but I, but I think that's emotional. And what you're talking about is, you know, that look at the data, look at the results. If we can get past that and actually focus on, dig deep and actually focus on ourselves and, and others, but you know, um, you might develops. also be tired, right? Like if you've had a whole mm. bunch of experiences one after the other that have just beaten you down and just made you feel just worn out by life, then mm. it's going to take a little bit longer. It's going to take people on in your on your team or on your employers. It's going to take them reaching out to you more before you're going to start to feel those feelings. And just knowing that it might take you longer based on your past experiences. Like if I was to go into a new environment and I knew, hmm, all the people on my team are probably going to feel like they belong within a month, but it's probably going to take me six months. I'd be a lot easier on myself. So I would love for us to be able to get to a point like that where we can at least, you know, bring this from a completely uh, nebulous feeling to something that we might actually be able to set expectations for ourselves. Yeah, I so love that. Uh, I've got to get onto other questions, but I love that. And what's gone through my mind is, um, hmm. I wonder, Nicole, if I'm if I have the ability, the capability, the capacity, the insight to come up with that that six month thing and give myself that grace. I don't. I right. think, am I too hard on myself? Do I have the capacity to think that? It's a, it's, a, it's an intrigue. It's a profound thing. I'll. Yeah. It's going to take me six months to process that. Um, <laughs> Good. It's profound. Then my work here. Yeah. My work here is done, Orion. I, this is a question from someone. What does inclusion for a non-speaking engineer lead look like in practice? So this is interesting too. My, my more formal answer is that we do have a list of 100 inclusive practices and sometime in April, we'll be able to bring those out in, in different ways to people who want to, to be familiar with them and learn how you can use them, so on and so forth. So that's, that's my official formal answer. My unofficial informal answer is that I used to be an engineering manager on a team with a non-speaking engineer who was absolutely fantastic. But we didn't realize he was non-speaking for a while because he wasn't speaking and he didn't tell us. <laughs> so anyway, here's, here's uh, so was, was the question about, uh, was it about inclusion or belonging? Can you, can you read Yeah, what again? does inclusion look like in that, in that instance? Okay, in that so we emailed with him a lot and we let him know, we're just gonna email with you all the time and you let us know by email if you have any questions about things or if, if you know we're doing something that you think we shouldn't be doing and you know you go do your systems administrator stuff here's the three things keep our systems running with these three kpis everybody will be happy is that okay with you and you know he write back yeah of course absolutely and 
you know, as long as we knew that he was okay and he knew that we were okay, which we just, you know, had a, a touch base with by email every few months. He got his work done. He felt included. We felt like we were including him. And from all of the interactions over the 12 years that we worked together, I think it went pretty well. He was happy he just didn't have to, have to you know, come out to coffee hour. He was super happy about that. And you know, there were a couple people on our team that were a little put off, but like, can't he just come to coffee and sit there? And I said, well, why? If he's not enjoying it and not getting anything out of it, if he's gonna feel better at his computer, writing some bash scripts to do important stuff, why should he not do that? And so it was part of, it was an adjustment in multiple ways, right? Getting yeah. the team to feel comfortable with their discomfort and also letting him know that, yeah, if that's what you enjoy doing, if that's what makes you feel included, just being in your office and communicating by email, we're cool with that. And so yeah. what he said years later was, it makes me feel good. It makes me feel included that I don't have to do any of those things and everyone still likes me. And we did. He was great. Yeah. And, and I mean, you know, breaking news, everyone, it's easy and it's free. Um, I mean, as long as you bring a coffee back for me, there won't be any trouble. Let's, let's be clear. Um, all right. Another question. A lot of comments just thanking you, by the way, for your presentation. They really enjoyed it. Just letting you know. Um, okay. Some of these don't make a lot of sense because it's not my thing, but I'll do my best. Um, what would management metrics look like in a many model of inclusion diversity? Does that make sense? Um, I think so. And I think that's the project that I'm working on right now with a whole bunch of simulated data. So all I can answer is to say, yes, we're thinking about that because we want to know the answer too. Okay. Now, uh, right for now. several, yeah, okay. For several managers, uh, leaders, inclusion remains a concept and many they will not um, personally, you know, and many will not be personally driven by inclusion. So do you think uh, someone's asking what incentives could be created to shift their perception of inclusion? I mean, I would initially, this is not my question, but initially just by watching the presentations, I would say the data and, and then the growth, but um, what's your thoughts? Um, the so there's probably a whole universe of answers that could be given to this question, but my favorite, my favorite thing is by having those managers not forcing them to, but making shared deliverables that come out of a team, something that the manager is responsible for. So, you know, a lot of times there's this dynamic where if the team doesn't get it done, the manager can just say, oh, you know, that team, they're not senior enough or they're not this or they're not that, right? No, you all share in this deliverable together. You're tasked with building shared understanding and providing us with the evidence of the shared understanding. And then if you manager come to us and say, team isn't doing it, we'll say, what are you doing to include everyone so that they do do it? So that's one of the things that's been moderately effective. Um, not all the time, but we're working on that. Yeah. And I guess there's a, and there's a few points here that have pointed out, you know, people who are entrenched in old or let's just say, you know, orthodox um, neurotypical ways um, in, you know, in the idea there isn't other ways to do things that this is obviously um, ch a challenge for people in, you know, certainly um, in the in the country that we're broadcasting from, in, in Australia, I'm presumably it's it's not um, just here. But you know, you've just talked about in incentives and things. But bro broadly speaking, is uh, how what have you found are the best ways to tackle to progress to 
you know, to unite, to bring teams together from all, I guess, all walks of life and all generations in that, in that kind of entrenched in old in neurotypical ways. Oh, let me think about this from the first, I gotta, I gotta put myself in the headspace of a previous job. So let me, let me inside my head, let me pick one. So the question is, how can you bring people together to do inclusion when they're entrenched in traditional neurotypical ways of being? Which is a pretty common experience Very common. for a lot of people. Yeah. yeah. So the answer that I'm going to share with you is from a work group that I was part of where out of about 15 people, 12 were neurotypical, including the manager. And three were either autistic, dyslexic, or both. So this is a mostly neurotypical group. The challenge was indeed trying to retrain the manager on why it would be important to work on inclusion and belonging in this group. So <clears throat> the way we did it was he was, he was very easily swayed by performance and financial metrics. So we showed him that all of his complaints about the neurodivergent people on his team could be resolved by allocating, you know, two, three hours of this neurotypical person's time a week to do this thing, allocating this person's time to do this thing, and then showing him the result in performance. So it was a, it was a really emotionless appeal to have him just, you know, just try it for a month and see if this, if this doesn't improve your bottom line numbers, which is what you get evaluated on, will go away. But his numbers improved and he was like, oh, all right, well, I don't understand this and I don't think it's necessary, but it's getting me what I want. So keep doing it. And watching Rajesh um, in that small portion of time, he showed a lot of graphs and a lot of data that, I mean, that not only was the, the system working, but the system was growing and it was productive. And it was, I mean, I always I mean, try to. It's still yeah. a work in progress, right? I mean, if, yeah. if, if, if we leave nothing beyond, you know, do the self-reflection, this is, it, people are, people are messy creatures. We're emotional. We deal with things in day-to-day -day life. We have to bring our whole selves to work and get stuff done. Even when we don't feel like it, there's so many forces going on and so many people interacting. This is a messy prospect. So I don't want people to leave here thinking, oh, there's an organization who's completely solved this and you know, everything is the utopia. No, it's that we're taking a pragmatic approach to building and cultivating this environment so that everyone participates, so that there's full participation and ensuring full participation. And it's a learning yeah. and growth experience for everyone at all times. It's an investment. Yeah, but, if, yeah. if organizations aren't willing to make at least a little bit of investment, uh, you know, it's not going to fly. But if we can show you make a little bit of an investment in this, you're not doing it for the feelings, even though the feelings are something that, you know, we want everyone to have. If you invest in inclusion, you get the performance differential. And it's hard for CFOs to argue with that. And and what more can you? What more do you need to say to the people that are entrenched? That that's as good as it gets. And I think too, but this is the thing, right? You don't want utopia or perfect perfection. You want this win-win scenario. It would still be based, nice. I, yeah. I mean, if we could get utopia, that would be pretty awesome. But I think my yeah, utopia absolutely. would be different than yours. You know, we just got to deal with that. I bet. I bet. Yeah. And but the thing is, you know, this is this is the the really this is the way to look at it. Um, the way you guys are looking to do things, because I think there's there's an older way, which is more of a um, a tokenistic thing or a ticker box thing, or a doing it for 
um, you know, the wrong reasons and, of course, wondering yeah, why it doesn't work. And, and that's something that's yep. obviously uh, very strong. Now, let's get to a, a couple of more questions before we wind up. All right. So do you think that the use of technologies at the workplace can change, impact the sense of belonging? And I guess, you know, if you do, how do you, how do you think that is a really, really big question. And all I can say is I'm really excited to see if chat GPT-4 can do that for us, but I don't know, but let's all figure it out because that'd be great. I would love to ask GPT-4, hey, here's all the characteristics of the people on my team. Please tell me how we can get that sense of belonging the quickest. Maybe maybe it can do it. Who knows? Let's try. Everybody should try. You know, if you want to do. I'm fascinated by, by all this, by the way, the, um, you know, the AI component of, of all this type of stuff. Um, and it's really... Yeah, yeah, no, but it is, and I'm, yeah, I, I really, I really love um, the idea that you're even, even mentioning it or bringing it up, um, and because I've, as a, I see, I'm a content creator, right? Like I make YouTube videos and podcasts and things, and as soon as um, the the chat GPT thing kind of came out, and you know, there's a free stuff, I already started to utilize it for content creation, for ideas, and for for different parts of my role, and you know, I found that it's, um, it's, it's been um, it's been astoundingly helpful and in, in many ways it's it's providing me with m more productivity and and actually more success and uh, so I've, I've it's quite amazing um how it's helped me and you know potentially um how it can help uh, many other people and it's just it's just a it's just a brand new thing and, and yeah so i've really i've really found that um fantastic totally agree yeah all right uh let's see now it's I'm not. This is a this is a question I've got for you. Um, I'm going to do my best. Um, I'll, I'll be honest. It does say at the starting brackets. Not sure if this makes sense. So um, okay. I, I apologize. Um, how do we manage the evolution changing of a person's neurodiverse neurodiverse needs best, periodic or lasting, to ensure we're always encouraging belonging in our actions? Example: considering generational diversity for sufferers of dementia, et cetera. Does, does that question make sense? I think so. And I'm going to give a really unsatisfying answer of how we deal with things like that. We don't assume that everyone's needs and preferences are static. So, it, you know, I mentioned biodex.info. What we ask all of our team members to do is when you join a new team or when your team stops the work that it's doing, whenever team composition changes, Go back and reflect on your own needs and preferences again. And you know, sometimes, you know, let's say here's here's an easy one, right? Let's let's say you had a really bad bout of COVID and your brain fog is lasting a long time. Well, you might not have known about that six months ago when you updated your biodex, but when you update it this time, go through and reflect on which of the inclusive practices might actually be helpful to you, which ones might actually be the difference between being able to do your job and not. And just establish those as baseline preferences. And then the team, when the team creates its working agreements, they weave those in. And there's no penalty that your preferences have changed. It's just an acknowledgement that time goes on, people change. Sometimes people get over things that were really important to, you know, have to have inclusive practices around before. Um, you know, certainly the ways that I feel included in teams and work groups now is totally different than how it would have been in my 20s totally different. So accepting that we're going to grow and change and maybe even end up at times dealing with the brain fog from COVID or 
dealing with issues related to dementia. It's just a natural part of human existence and let's accept that with each other. Yeah, I think as an autistic person, I always, from my point of view, I'd, I'd almost say that my, you know, my needs could could change depending on the time of year, depending oh, on yeah, the, the pressures I'm under, the work yep. stress, the family stress. And and do you think it's realistic for, for you know, for businesses to be able to, for organisations to be able to um, manage that as in, you know, provide uh, an inclusive an inclusive environment where it can actually manage the the changing needs of a neurodivergent person on a you know on a potentially daily weekly monthly period or is that is that so unrealistic again, again let's shift from feelings into the fact domain that cfos like on average for most staff level people it costs between fourteen and twenty thousand dollars every time somebody quits. That whole process of going through trying to find people and go through resumes and hiring and you know hires that don't work out. There's always a risk associated with you hire somebody and you don't find out that they actually can't do the job. And then you lose work. There's all these different ways that you can factor uh, factor in those losses into your model. Long story short is retaining and retaining neurodivergent employees is a lot cheaper than having to cover the cost and the risk of new hires. So might it be a little bit of a time and effort investment to go through and, and work on inclusive practices and making sure we self-monitor? Yes, but it's a lot cheaper than the financial alternative. That'd, that'd be the way I'd handle it. And I think that's a, that's a great way. Look, we've reached, we've, we're reaching the end here and I, I, I just can't thank you enough for, for your time and for your insights they've just been incredible I've re I have really enjoyed it um for those it's been watching delightful to meet you too thank you so much for emptying. it's it's been great great to chat I appreciate you um um being here but just I'll just parting remarks from yourself just for those watching you were talking about your services and some things that they can access and things can before we go just want to quickly remind everyone and um of how they can uh, look into some of the things you've been talking about uh, absolutely so the the website for the company is ultranauts.co. Um, do I need to spell ultranauts? Like no. astronauts, but ultranauts, yeah. Ultranauts.co. And then you can find out more about Biodex either by going to ultranauts.co or straight to it, biodex.info. And you can see what the questions are. Hey, thank you so much, Nicole. Yeah, and thank, thank you, you to too. Rajesh. Plus, pass on our best. I will. Uh, we really do appreciate it. It's been, it's been right. great. <laughs> see you later okay. uh, Nicole and thank you Rajesh now let me wrap this up my friends before we move on to our our next keynote okay so once again I uh, just thank you so much um, to Rajesh and Nicole our next session in uh, well, about five minutes or so is our final keynote um, brought to you by Vanessa and Lucy from Social Cypher this is amazing you do not want to miss this one these these guys are phenomenal. To get there, click back to the homepage or the agenda page. You'll see the session listed as starting soon. When you're ready, you click on the link. It'll take you into the session. And I will be there to greet you, my friends. So I'll see you, um, I guess, in a, in a few minutes. The 2023 Autism at Work Virtual Summit was proudly sponsored by DXC Technologies, GHD Engineering, La Trobe University, Untapped Group, ANZ, and SAP. Autism CRC is the independent national source of evidence for best practice. For more information on Autism CRC or the Autism at Work Virtual Summit, head to our website autismcrc.com.au.